0: You say, well, Christmas is over. Why are we covering the Christmas story? Well, because of the sovereignty of God, that's where we find ourselves. I finished up John, which I wanted to do because of coronavirus. I wasn't able to finish it up on Sunday night, so I finished it up on Sunday morning. Then I went into Matthew, and so that's where we are. Matthew chapter 2 and uh, verses uh, 1 through 12 this morning. I've entitled the message, uh, Wise Men Came to Worship. So let's look to the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. The theme is Christ the King, and we are in that uh, first section here as far as the outline, the advent of the king, uh, proving his legal right to the throne by his genealogy. It's really a dual emphasis, uh, emphasizing he is the son of David, a descendant of David, But he's also the son of God. We have that dual emphasis being brought out in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Well, Matthew made a huge deal out of the fact that the real promised Messiah must be of the line of David. God promised David that a son of his would sit on his throne forever. That's a mega promise. David, one of your sons is going to sit on your throne forever forever. So the Messiah must be a descendant of David. He had to meet all the specific requirements laid out in the genealogy that we looked at last week in Matthew 1, 1 through 17. And he meets all these requirements, as we noted, very specific, very precise. Matthew then emphasized that the Christ child was to be called Jesus. That name, which is above every other name, as we find in Philippians chapter 2. And he was to be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. That resonate with anybody here? Yeah. I mean, that's us. Uh, As God's people, we've been saved from our sins by what? Well, we just had the Lord's table. We're remembering what Jesus has done, and he's done it all. He's, he's not kind of part Savior. You know, he did his thing, and we kind of do our thing, and it's kind of a joint effort. It's a team effort that gets us to heaven, right? No. It was a Jesus thing. He did it all on the cross. We owe everything to him. He alone is the Savior. That's what his name means. Jesus means literally God Savior. Jesus is the God-man who saves. And he did it by going to the cross and dying for our sins and then rising again the third day. In addition, Matthew one twenty three says they shall call his name Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. This prepares us then for chapter 2, in which the wise men come to worship him. All true believers are true worshipers. Let's pick it up, chapter 2 and uh, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Note it says that this happened after. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Judea is the Greek form of the Hebrew Judah, corresponding to a Roman province in the days of Christ. Uh, put a map up here for you to see, maybe whoops, sorry <laughs> your turn <laughs> yeah, okay, so you see uh, on the bottom here uh, where you have uh, Judea, have these various uh, Roman provinces, but Judea here is this area in which we find uh, Bethlehem and Jerusalem. In that area right there. Now, how long after Jesus was born this happened, we are not specifically told, but it says that it was in the days of Herod the king. This statement, by the way, is the only clue we have in Matthew as to the timing when Christ was born. It happened in the days of Herod the king. Now, this intersects with a historical reality. Herod was a real king in history who ruled over the Jews. The Christian faith is uniquely a prophetic faith because it is based on fulfilled prophecy. There is no other faith that can really claim such a thing other than the Judeo-Christian faith. There is only one true prophetic faith, and that is the faith anchored to the God of the Bible. The other thing that is unique to the faith of the Bible, the Christian faith, is that it is uniquely a historical faith in a way that no other world religion can claim. You ever think about that? It's anchored to history, both Old Testament and New Testament. It's a historical faith. It's a prophetic faith. It's a historical faith. Years ago, there was a man by the name of Houston Smith who wrote a book titled, quote, The World's Religions. It's still used in many colleges even today. And uh, Smith uh, did not claim to be particularly religious. Uh, In fact, he just wanted to say, you know, he's kind of neutral in in all of this discussion. And uh, in this book, he makes this statement. Christianity is basically a historical religion. He's studying all the religions of the world. He doesn't say this about any of the other religions of the world, by the way. Only about Christianity. Christianity. That is to say, it is founded not on abstract principles, but in concrete events, actual historical happenings. That, my friends, if you understand what's being said, is very significant. And that coming from a guy who's not even a Christian. There's an interesting story about Sir William Ramsay, who was considered to be one of the four, uh, foremost, is considered to be one of the foremost archaeologists in history. He was very wealthy and educated, came from a family of atheists. He himself was an atheist, and he set out to disprove the Bible. He went to the Holy Land with the intention of undermining the validity of the Bible, and in particular, the historical book of Acts, which is an inspired history of the early church. The book of Acts, written by Luke. Well, after thirty years of intense study, Ramsey had a change of mind. By the way, what what do we what's that word that kind of defines a change of mind? Well, yeah. Repentance means to have a change of mind. Well, he had a change of mind. He wrote, quote, Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect to its trustworthiness. He went to undermine it, but he came away with a different mindset. After analyzing hundreds of historical artifacts confirming the history of the New Testament record, Sir William Ramsay shocked the archaeological world of his day by announcing that he had become, are you ready for this, a Christian, a Christian. Herod is a real historical figure who is found not only in the Bible, but also in secular literature. Now, he's often called Herod the Great. But he really should be called Herod the Terrible. I mean, he was a crazy man in a lot of ways. He was power crazy. Power was really his God. Herod was named King of the Jews by the Roman Senate in 40 B.C. And he reigned until his death in 4 B.C. Because Herod went on to order all the Jewish children two years old and under in Bethlehem to be killed... This indicates that Jesus may have been as old as two years old before Herod's death in 4 B.C. Therefore, scholars believe that Jesus was evidently born somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C., probably between 6 and 5. Uh, And this shows that our calendars are off by at least four years, which is generally recognized, probably more like five or six years. But I digress. Herod was a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. He was an Edomite and therefore had no biblical right to the throne. What are you doing sitting on the throne in Jerusalem as king of the Jews? An Edomite. He was therefore a usurper and the Jews saw him that way. He was very cunning and cruel. John Phillips Uh, kind of summarizes this way. No man or woman was safe while Herod reigned. One by one, he murdered every rival claimant to the throne. He murdered his wife's brother, a lad of 17, because he was popular with the Jews. He murdered Maramne, Maramne, the beautiful Maccabean princess he had married. By the way, she was one of 10 wives. This happened to be his favorite wife that he had murdered because he was suspicious of her. Had a very paranoid mind. And he murdered both her sons. Five days before his death, he murdered his son and heir. Herod hacked and hewed his way through life, slaughtering six to eight thousand of the best people in his realm. That's why Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus is reported to have cynically said, quote, I'd sooner be Herod's swine than Herod's son. Yeah, he was a really bad guy. That's why I say Herod should really be called Herod the Terrible. He was guilty of tremendous atrocities. And Rome didn't really care as long as he kept the Holy Land in check, kind of kept those Jews in check. Herod was really a puppet king for Rome. As I say, he was an extremely paranoid person, suspecting everyone. And killing anyone and everyone that he considered to be a threat. But he was also great in one sense. He was great in the sense of being a builder. A builder. Everywhere we went in the Holy Land, they said, well, yeah, this is what Herod did. And Herod did this and Herod did that. Even to this day, we see the, the effects of, of his building enterprises. He built palaces, theaters, amphitheaters, monuments, fortresses, and cities, etc., etc. However, his greatest project was the remodeling and the enlarging of the Jewish temple, which began in 20 BC. It was Herod the Great who did this. The temple that was standing when Jesus was alive. Was not completed this this project of remodeling and enlarging the temple was not completed until after his death. Remember, he died in four B.C., but it wasn't really totally completed until sixty-three A.D., only seven years before it was destroyed by the Romans in seventy A.D. As the supposed king of the Jews, he did this for the Jews. This tremendous, phenomenal uh, work on the temple trying to curry favor with the Jews. After all, he did bear the title king of the Jews, but they hated him anyway, knowing he was an Edomite. He outwardly did profess the religion of Judaism, but everybody pretty much agrees it was for political reasons, expedient political reasons. I mean, it wasn't real, that's for sure. And the Jews did not accept him as one of them, that's for sure. Well, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Wise men is a Greek word commonly translated as magi, M-A-G-I. This term magi was a fairly broad term related to a category of men that in the east studied astrology, astronomy, dreams, and various forms of magic. When Daniel was in Babylon, he was lumped in with this category of wise men who advised the king. So they were kind of known, you know, they were kind of specialized people who could advise the king, supposedly. Stanley Toussaint says, These wise men could be either fraudulent sorcerers or a more honorable class of astrologers. Here they are the latter, and we believe that's true. They were probably a combination of scholars, scientists, and astrologists. By the way, they are not said to be kings, as tradition often claims. Um, They're magi. They're wise men. Many think from the east here refers to Babylon or the region of Mesopotamia, which is the region between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. And the reason for that is because many Jews at this point were still living in exile there. There are other suggestions, such as Arabia, but we're not specifically told. However, the region of Babylon is is probably a pretty good guess. From the east, where was it? Well, we can't say for sure, but very possibly in that Mesopotamian region. We really don't know either how many Magi there were. Tradition says three. We sang about it, right? We three kings of Orient are... Wow, special music is coming back to (laughs) Southview. Uh, I guess it wasn't that special, was it? Anyway, uh, tradition says three, but that is speculation. And uh, historically, the the reason the tradition probably became three is because of the the three gifts, the three categories of gifts that are listed in in verse 11. Uh, That's probably the reason. But however many there were, we are not really sure of that. But they were very probably accompanied by a fairly large entourage of assistants and associates, making for an impressive scene as they descended upon Jerusalem. I don't think this was just like a a little small group of three men coming into town. Probably more like a large entourage coming into Jerusalem, which would undoubtedly have caused quite a stir in the entire town. And as we see, everybody in Jerusalem kind of knew what was going on here, uh, as we get into verse 3. Well, these wise men went straight to Jerusalem. After all, this was the capital city of Israel. And if you're looking for a newborn king of the Jews, where would you look for this new uh, found king of the Jews? Well, you would probably had right to the capital city, which is where they went, where you would normally probably expect that the, the king of the Jews would be born. And they showed up there, verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Saying is in the present tense indicating that they were continually asking, with the idea they were asking anyone and everyone in Jerusalem, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then they indicate the cause of their searching, saying, For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. There's been no end of discussion and surmising about what this star was and on what basis these wise men came to discern that it had something to do with the birth of the king of the Jews. How'd they know that? Now, many believe that very possibly these wise men were wise to, pun intended, Old Testament prophecy concerning the coming Messiah of Israel. They point to Daniel's influential prophetic ministry in Babylon, and the fact that there were still Jews living in Babylon. And perhaps uh, as students of the Old Testament, they were familiar with Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24.17. We read there, Numbers 24.17, I see him... But not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. That's an interesting prophecy. J. Vernon McGee says, The star and the scepter go together. The only place I know where they are put together in prophecy in the Old Testament is here in Numbers 24. In this prophetic revelation... Balaam saw a star and a scepter come out of Jacob. Kings back in this day were often known by the designation of star. And scepter denotes royal authority. Now, Balaam was from Mesopotamia in the east. And this is very possibly where these wise men hailed from. They may have deciphered from Numbers 24, 17 that a special star would be connected to the arrival of this special king. You understand, Balaam is a very strange man. He's a false prophet who God kind of overrode. Uh, God had his way with him in spite of himself. He didn't really want to give the message he ended up giving. God is just that sovereign. He can do what he wants to do. But that's, that was Balaam. But he was a respected prophet in this region of the world. Even for centuries after he died, he was still respected and regarded as a prophet in that area of the world. Then too, as I say, the prophet Daniel lived in this area when he was taken captive to Babylon. He was the wisest of the wise men in Babylon. And so undoubtedly his writings too were preserved in that context using Daniel 9. These wise men may have been able to estimate the approximate time of Messiah's arrival. That, in conjunction with the star phenomenon, may have led them to Jerusalem. However, as seen in verse 12, God may have communicated with them in a more direct fashion, through means like a dream, as we see him doing in verse 12. Specifically, how they knew about this king of the Jews being born, we are not told other than they connected it with this special star-like phenomenon. Now let's talk about this for just a moment. What was this star? It's been identified as a comet, as a supernova, which is basically an exploding star, Uh, a planetary conjunction, you know, the planets aligning, uh, or a supernatural phenomenon. John Phillips says, Astronomers assure us that two years before the birth of Christ in 7 B.C., There was indeed a remarkable conjunction of the planets, Jupiter and Saturn. In the following year, Mars joined the conjunction. This phenomenon occurs only once in every 800 years. John Phillips. Now that's interesting simply because a couple of weeks ago on December 21st, we had such an arrangement. Jupiter and Saturn once again aligned to create the phenomenon that is commonly called the Christmas star or the star of Bethlehem. And coming right before Christmas, it caused quite a stir. And it was quite a sight to see. Scientists say that this visible arrangement has not happened in 800 years. This spectacular picture was taken by Greg Hogan in the state of Georgia on December 21st. There you go. That is spectacular, isn't it? That's a spectacular picture right there. It's a real picture. Well, God may have providentially used uh, some type of natural phenomenon like this, but most scholars believe that this was purely a supernatural event, unique to this occasion. Note the wise men specifically called this his star, a unique star, meaning a unique star that related to the birth of the king of the Jews. Moody Bible Commentary says... That this star appeared, chapter 2, verse 7 here, suggested it had not been documented previously. And 2, 9 implies that this star moved around supporting a supernatural origin and may parallel the pillar of fire that led the Hebrews in the wilderness called the Shekinah glory. Well, how God specifically did it and the means he used to communicate the significance of it is not spelled out here. But the point is these Gentiles got the message that the king of the Jews had been born, and they came to worship him. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. You know what really got King Herod's attention? It was that little phrase, king of the Jews. If they, whoever else was born, that, that was no big deal, but one's been born who's king of the Jews. This was, after all, Herod's title. And he was paranoid about anyone else trying to assume This position. There was much uh, messianic expectation in the land after all, and so any talk of this like this was considered by Herod to be a great threat. Now a contrast is being drawn between Herod the usurper, the one whom the Romans declared to be the king of the Jews, and the true Messiah who is rightfully, biblically, prophetically the king of the Jews. And behind the scenes is the reality of spiritual warfare, Herod, you recall, was a descendant of Esau uh, and represented that age-old struggle between Jacob and Esau, which began in the womb, even before the boys were born, Genesis 25. Herod of Esau represents the age-old hostility that is opposed to the chosen line of Jacob, of which Christ is the ultimate representative. This theme of Jesus being the King of Jews begins with his birth and runs right through the entire gospel culminating in Pilate putting a placard over the cross that read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. But as we will note, as King of the Jews, this Messiah also has a place for Gentiles in his plan. The Jews knew well that uh, when Herod was troubled, it meant trouble for everyone around him. Any perceived threat would be met with murder and mayhem. Any talk about a rival king of the Jews would be met with a murderous purge. Thus, the whole of Jerusalem was troubled. Everybody knew about this. So here's what happened, verse 4. And when he had gathered, that is Herod, when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where, where the Christ was to be born. He has one more follow-up question to this, but his initial question is, where? Where is he to be born? Now, these uh, chief priests and scribes were the top religious Jewish uh, leaders, the religious Jewish leaders in the land. The chief priests consisted of the current high priest and other previous uh, high priests who had served in this position. You understand, uh, normally in the Old Testament, the high priest was to serve until he died, but it had become politicized under Rome. In fact, Herod oversaw the priesthood, which were comprised mainly of Sadducees who didn't even believe in the resurrection. There was a real political component here, with Herod really being seen as the one who's kind of finagling with this and has his political hands in the mix of it. They were the ones, by the way, who ran the temple. These chief priests, they governed the temple. The scribes were professional teachers of the law and therefore experts in the Old Testament and the oral traditions. They were also called lawyers and and most of the scribes were Pharisees who prided themselves on knowing the book. I don't know that the chief priests knew too much, but uh, these uh, scribes did. They had knowledge. They intellectually had a good grasp on the contents of the scriptures. Even though uh, probably most, if not all of them, did not really know God. Now Herod, claiming to be a convert to Judaism, did connect the idea of king of the Jews with him being the Christ. Isn't that interesting? Which is to say, the Messiah. But clearly he was an unbeliever, having so little regard for the God of the Bible and this coming Messiah that he is thinking he can actually wipe out this Messiah, which he was plotting to try and do. It is kind of fascinating that he is looking to these religious leaders, these religious scholars, for in a sense messianic insight from their holy book. Where, 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 where is he to be born? What does the book say? By the way, how inconsistent is this? I mean, that is the way of a mind darkened by sin. This is how it operates. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, if the Holy Scriptures could accurately predict the where the Messiah was to be born, perhaps you shouldn't mess with that kind of sovereignty. I'm just saying. You might want to say, Oh boy, if that was predicted 700 years in advance to the the nth degree, maybe I don't want to mess with that. But alas, he was spiritually blind. And spiritually blind people do what? Stupid things. They do. We do. I do. Uh, Apart from the grace of God, there go I. Verse 5. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For thus it is written by the prophet. Note they didn't even have to say, Well, we'll get back with you on that. Let's study this. They didn't even have to study at all. They knew the Bible well. They knew right off that it was written by the prophet Micah that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. That's known in your Bible. You know the Bible that well? You know where it says in the Old Testament where, where the Messiah is to be born? Well, yes, a lot of you do if you're students of Scripture. But I would say your average professing Christian has no idea. Well, I think it's there somewhere. We sang a song about it somewhere, didn't we? Uh, yeah. By the way, this is a great warning that people can intellectually know a lot about the Bible and yet not know God. These were scholars. Bible scholars. But here it is. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me The one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. By the way, everlasting is literally the days of eternity denoting Messiah's existence in eternity past. Think about this verse for just a moment, which they were very familiar with. What an amazing verse. And yet clearly these religious leaders did not get it. Now, they understood properly that this was about the Messiah and that he was to be born in Bethlehem. They got that part right. But they completely overlooked that he would be one whose goings forth are from everlasting, indicating he was to be an eternal being. How could it be that one who is from everlasting could be born in Bethlehem? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? That was the riddle of the Old Testament, which is really answered in the New Testament in the sense that we now see that Jesus is both God, eternal God, and man in one person. As God, he is eternal. As a man, he was born of a virgin in what we call the incarnation. It's right there. It's consistent totally with Micah 5.2. Bethlehem was the birthplace of David in the Old Testament, and therefore fitting that prophetically his greater son, the son of David, the Messiah, would also be born there. The Davidic connection continues to be emphasized. Bethlehem was located about five miles south of Jerusalem. And here's their further commentary. Verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah... Are not the least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They're really paraphrasing Micah five. In verse six, we see a paraphrased quote of Micah five two, which is conflated with "Who will shepherd my people Israel?" from 2 Samuel five two. Note that Bethlehem Ephrathah in Micah five two is translated as Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Here in Micah in Matthew two six. By the way, this word Bethlehem means house of bread, and in Judah it was originally called Ephrathah, meaning fruitful, in Genesis thirty five nineteen. So that's the old designation Ephrathah. But this Bethlehem Ephrathah, which was located in Judah is distinguished from another Bethlehem of Zebulun, which was up north in Galilee, as seen in Joshua 19.15. This detail is important. You see, there were two towns in the nation of Israel called Bethlehem. And Messiah, 700 years before his birth, was prophesied by the prophet Micah that he would be born in Bethlehem, of Judah, not Bethlehem in Galilee. The true Messiah had to be born in the right place, in the right Bethlehem. So uh, note, the map here, it's a little fuzzy, but uh, we've got uh, Bethlehem down here in Judah, and we've got Bethlehem up here in, in Zebulun, in this Galilean region. Well, it had to be this one, because this is what the prophet said 700 years in advance. Had to have the right zip code, right? You send a letter somewhere, you want to get the right zip code. Um, There are lots of uh, different towns with the same name all over the country. Had to be the right place, prophetically. When we were in Israel, our Jewish guide, who was an unbeliever, took us to a spot in Jerusalem... Uh, by which we could overlook uh, you know, five miles away down into the, the city of Bethlehem. And the Arabs run Bethlehem, not the Jews. The Arabs run Bethlehem presently. So he as a Jew was really not welcome there. And uh, as he did so, as he was showing us as our Jewish guide and unbeliever, he was showing us this and saying, oh, there's Bethlehem over there. And he said, and, and, and this is where Jesus was born. So uh, I kind of blurted out, well, why? And he retorted, because I said so. (laughs) To which then I responded, no, because the prophet said so. It was kind of a tense moment, but a quiet one. (laughs) This happened where it did, in Bethlehem of Judea, because the prophet Micah, under inspiration, had said, It would be so. This was fulfilled prophecy given 700 years in advance. Only God could do this. The modified quote from Micah 5.2, you are little. That's Micah 5.2, you are little. But now in Matthew 2.6, these scribes, kind of paraphrased it, are not the least as seen in Matthew 2, six, It has the sense that all Bethlehem was small, yet because of the ruler who would come, come out of her, uh, this lowly little town would be exalted. Ed Glasscock says, Matthew is repeating what the scribes and the chief priests said. In their zeal to honor David, the great king, and his birthplace, they altered the text to elevate the character and importance of this historically significant site. And yet, in the sovereignty of God, what they had to say was certainly true. Rulers like Herod had little or no regard for this little place called Bethlehem. And yet, because of word that this ruler, the king of the Jews, was coming from there, it all of a sudden acquired tremendously great importance. Moody Bible Commentary, Micah emphasizes what made Bethlehem great, namely the birth of the Messiah. Matthew asserts that Bethlehem consequently was not unimportant. And that's true. And then Matthew 2, 6 combines the truth that this Messiah figure would be both a ruler and a shepherd for his people Israel. He would be a shepherd king. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23, 1. He's a shepherd, but he's also a king. And with people like Herod in charge, they were in definite need. Of good shepherding care, verse seven. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. So he wanted to know where he would be born, and now he wants to know the timing. Uh, What time did this star appear to you, gentlemen? Well, after dismissing the religious leaders, note that he didn't meet with the religious leaders on this score. He went "No, no, they don't. I don't need. I got what I need from you guys. So now he meets privately with these wise men. Obviously, he didn't trust the religious leaders anyway, which was a smart move, I'm sure. But he's meeting privately with these wise men, and he wanted to know from them what time the star had appeared to them. <clears throat> and we know from how the story unfolds that Herod was thinking that this would indicate when Messiah was born. And based on that, he had plans to kill every child in Bethlehem from that point forward to the present to make sure that he got rid of this newborn king of the Jews. But again, in his folly, he failed to realize that a God so great as to organize this star phenomenon would surely know what he was plotting. Or oh, the small-mindedness of a, of a dark, re- degenerate mind. We see in the scriptures... Proverbs twenty one thirty twenty one thirty, there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Just write it down. Only losers take on God. Wise Gamaliel said, quote, "If it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest perhaps you even be found to fight against God." Uh, yeah, hard lesson. Verse eight. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Wow. Talk about a gamer. Herod came off so humble. He came off as a a, a wannabe worshiper too. You know? By the way, the Bible says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. You know what a liar is? A liar is one who says, I'm a true worshiper too. Herod was a total liar, a hypocritical liar here. He came off that he too wanted to come and worship him, but in truth he wanted to come and kill him. He was a total hypocrite, furthering his scheming, murderous purposes. Verse 9, When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. How sad that although the religious leaders were very cognizant of the prophecy where the Messiah would be born, yet they showed zero interest in following it up. I mean, it was only five miles down the road, uh, uh, two-hour journey. And yet they did not care enough to even accompany the Magi. They came off spiritually cold and indifferent, which they proved to be. Stanley Toussaint says... The religious leaders knew the answer to the question of the Magi, but they were too apathetic to prove their own answer. What a contrast with these foreign Gentiles who diligently sought out the truth of the Messiah. Well, when the wise men departed from King Herod, once again the star appeared and led them to where the child was. And note it says here, Behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. Now this suggests that they had seen this star in the east, but it had not led them all the way. That's why they're going to Jerusalem and seeking direction and counsel and say, where? In both verse 2 and verse 9, it is stated that they saw, they saw this star in the east. Somehow they perceived from seeing this star that the king of the Jews had been born and they acted accordingly. Now all of a sudden, Here it is again. It has appeared again. Only this time it was leading them, and it did so till it came and stood over where the young child was. Again, this suggests that this was a supernatural rather than a natural phenomenon. Bible Knowledge Commentary says, Bethlehem is about five miles south of Jerusalem. stars, that is planets, naturally travel from east to west across the heavens, not from north to south. Could it be that the star which the Magi saw and and which led them to the specific house was the Shekinah glory of God? Perhaps this is what they saw in the east. And for want of a better term, they called it a star. I think that might be the very best explanation without being dogmatic. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. I mean, they got emotionally excited. Talk about a confirmation. Once again, they saw this glorious star, which may well have been the very Shekinah glory of God. It was stunning, causing the Magi to rejoice with exceeding great joy. Ed Glasscock says this, It is interesting that these men, who would certainly be used to royal persons and powerful politicians, expressed such joy, indicating the significance they placed upon this child. Again, why would Gentiles be excited about a king born to a non-royal family in such a small and politically weak nation as Israel? They had just had an audience with Herod, a monarch, who was a regular associate of Augustus Caesar. Yet there had been no indication of such exaltation in his presence, thankfully. Certainly, they had information about this child that excited their hearts. They knew there was something very different and very special about this child. Again, what a contrast with the pious religious leaders of Israel, who as the favored people of God, as they saw it, as Jews, probably thought that these Gentiles had nothing spiritually to share with them. But alas, they were completely wrong. God's plan also includes the Gentiles. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The Jews were closed, but the Gentiles were open. Verse eleven, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child and Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him: gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Note often Christian uh, Christmas traditions that is have the wise men coming to us to the stable, but in truth they came to a home. Some time had passed, and the family had now moved from the stable to a home. Now, we don't know how old Jesus was at this point, as I've already said. Scholars estimate that somewhere between a few weeks old to perhaps two years old, uh, based on the time frame that the wise men gave to Herod. By the way, a a different Greek word is used here, translated as young child, in contrast to the word that is translated as the babe in a manger in Luke 2.16. In addition, it is pointed out that the poor people's sacrifice offered in conjunction with the dedication of Christ at the temple would have been inappropriate after the reception of these extravagant gifts. All of this argues that some time has passed between the birth of Christ and this visit by the wise men, perhaps even two years after he had been born. William MacDonald says this, Ordinarily, mention would be made of a mother first. And then her child. But this child is unique and must be given first place. He's mentioned first. Now from the very beginning, these wise men made it clear that they had come on a worship mission. They were there to worship the king of the Jews. The word worship means to pay homage, to bow down before a superior. This word in a soft sense, if you will, can be used in reference to humbling yourself before another human being. But most of the time, by far the majority of the time, this word is used in reference to the worship, which is to be given to God and God alone. For example, same word used in Matthew 4.10, Jesus said to him, to Satan, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Clearly, the word worship here in this context is related to God and what is to be attributed to God alone. And then in Matthew 14, 33, then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him. That is Jesus saying, truly you are the son of God. As the one who is of the son of God, meaning of the order of God, he is worthy of worship. Now, by the way, in your Bible, you should draw a line. And it's okay if you use ink, I think, even at this point. Uh, draw a line from Matthew 1, They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Down to chapter 2, verse 11. Fell down and worshipped him. Only God is to be worshipped. Jesus was worshipped from the very beginning because he is God, the God-man. So, uh, note. You got those verses down? <laughs> Thank you. Matthew one twenty-three. Call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And connect that down to they, they fell down and worshipped him. Holman Christian Study Bible says, The Magi worshipped Jesus openly, as did many other people during his lifetime. Jesus' reception of worship reinforces his identity as Emmanuel, God with us. This was not just a man. This was the God-man. And note this very carefully. Although Mother Mary is on the scene, the text is very clear that they worshipped him. Meaning Jesus, they did not worship Mary. Again, worship is reserved only for God, and only Jesus is God, along with God the Father and God the Spirit, the triune God. Well, to show you all the more that the worship here involved is that which is to be given only to deity, note this insight from Howard Voss. He says, This was not mere obeisance to a civil ruler, but homage to God because they next presented gifts. The word for presented appears only seven times in the New Testament, and each time in connection with offerings to God. Everything about the text in chapter 1 and chapter 2 emphasizes this is a divine king who is to be worshipped. And what tremendous gifts they brought. This verse calls them treasures. They were treasures or gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And you wondered if Jesus really ever saw these gifts beyond, you know, the age of two or three. What did the family do? (laughs) I digress. Anyway, (laughs) but uh, there was some some monetary value here with these gifts. It's been long noted that the Old Testament prophesied that when the Messiah comes, the Gentiles in worship would bring him gifts in the kingdom. This is really a foreshadowing and partial fulfillment of that reality. But no, just a few. And there's many of these uh, texts like this. But Psalm 72, 10 and 11. The kings of Tarshish and of the Isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. So they're bringing gifts in worship to this king in the, in the kingdom. All nations shall serve him. Even so, come Lord Jesus, bring the kingdom. Isaiah 60. Verse 6, the multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All those of Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. Many such texts, as I say. By the way, William MacDonald has this commentary on Isaiah 60, verse 6, where it talks about they shall bring gold and incense. He says, why was the myrrh omitted? He says, because Isaiah was speaking of Christ's second advent, his coming in power and glory in relationship to the kingdom, there will be no myrrh then because he will not suffer then. But in Matthew, the myrrh is included because of his his first coming is in view. In Matthew, we have the suffering of Christ. In this passage in Isaiah, the glories that will follow. Well, that's an interesting uh, thought. Certainly, these gifts uh, represent worship that is fit for a divine king. However, many commentators think that very possibly these gifts symbolize what this king stood for. There are various ideas here, but let me just give you a a representation. Uh, The gold represents royal divinity, frankincense, the fragrance of Christ's pure life and his priestly intercession, and myrrh, his passion and death, since it was used in preparing the body for burial. All of this, again, is subjective and uncertain. But it is true that the extravagant gifts are reflective of that which is appropriate for the Messiah as seen in the Old Testament Scriptures. Verse 12, Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. How easy was that? I mean, it's an easy button, right? Just so easy. I mean... You just can't beat God in terms of his plans. He simply divinely warned the wise men in a dream that they should not return to Herod, and so they departed for their own country another way. Herod, of course, had no idea at that time that he was stymied and proceeded on with his evil plot, as we will see next time. William MacDonald makes this application, no one who meets Christ with a sincere heart ever returns the same way. Well, in our text today, we see three responses to the newborn divine king. Number one, we see the response of hatred and resistance by King Herod. Number two, we see the response of apathy or indifference on the part of the religious leaders. And three, we see the response of true worshipers on the part of the wise men. I think everyone listening to this message is going to respond to the truth of the divine king the divine human king, in one of three ways. Either they will be hostile, they will be indifferent, or they will fall down and worship the Christ. Well, my question is, which response defines you? One day, Christ was witnessing to a despised Samaritan, half Jew, half Gentile. And to this woman, he said this, cut to the chase, What's God really looking for? He said, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. What's God looking for in the world? He's looking for true worshipers. This defines the nature of a true faith. True faith turns one into a true worshiper. If you really believe on Christ as Savior and Lord, you will believe in Him in a worshipful way. Way. We often see this on Christmas cards at, at Christmas time, and it is so true. Wise men still seek him. Yes, indeed. Wise men still seek him. Be among them. Be among true worshipers, the true worshipers. Be among those that are people of true faith. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.